sales is about one thing and one thing only. It's about the number of at-bats. You know, the more often we get an opportunity to speak to someone who may have a benefit of the value we have to offer, the more often that can occur, the, the higher likelihood that they're going to say, hmm. So let's just dive right in here. I know we have a, a bunch of topic threads lined up for today. Uh, I guess the most timely one is this whole FTX collapse. Uh, it looks like it all kind of went down on Thursday and Friday last week. Uh, really a wild story. You know, I've been reading some of the headlines on it. Uh, curious to get your thoughts. I know you had some some thoughts in the email uh, dialogue we had over the weekends. Uh yeah, funniest one, I would say, uh, you know, not a funny situation, but the funniest thing I saw on the whole thing was uh, a video. I don't know if you saw this one of uh, Martin Screlly, the pharma bro uh, yeah. with uh, with Do Kwan from Luna. Uh, the, 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 uh, he was the the last crypto collapse, you know, last month yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. a couple of months ago. Then there was uh, uh, Sam Bankman Freed. And Martin Screlly's on the video saying like, yeah, so uh, I just want to tell you guys that, you know, prison's not that bad. Uh, you know, uh, it's really not. Uh, you know, I hope you guys don't go to prison. But if you do, it's it's not that bad. And then you just see the video shut off on Sam Bankman Freed. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, white collar crime, right? It's it's you get the slap on the hands. But uh, no, it's interesting. And I suppose uh, everything is hindsight's 2020, right? But basically, as far, I don't even think it's crypto as much as it's just pure, unadulterated speculation and greed. And um, I, I'm more of a fundamentalist. I love the concept and the technology behind blockchain. I think that's the future in, in many applications. It's not going to, I don't believe, for quite a long time, if it ever rules the world per se, where we have one global currency. Um, however, as far as its practical uses in business, gosh, the, the you know, Pandora's box hasn't even been open. I mean, the myriad of things that it can do, you know, uh, I mean, essentially blockchain is, is a database. It's a database, a highly secure database. And if you're doing transactions, I mean, many of our clients are in manufacturing and yeah, they're dealing with a lot of supply chain issues. And just the simple idea of having validation, verification of getting that order uh, when you got it, it only came to you because there's, you know, there's, you know, companies can play some games as far as volumes and uh, quantities, you know, when they need to, uh, and just to organize that database with other technologies kind of interspersed. Um, I just think there's so much that the blockchain technology can do. The currency itself, I mean, who's to say? Uh, everybody jumped on the bandwagon. I was thinking of the, uh, I think it was the tulip. It was like in the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1600s, maybe a little later. The tulip craze, the, uh, yeah, yeah, the tulip craze. I mean, it's it's kind of the the benchmark for market hysteria, right? Everybody, <laughs> you know, went long on tulip bulbs from Holland. You know, oh, you got everyone in, a, and they skyrocketed in value, and 
eventually uh, they came back down to reality. It's hilarious uh, so, to think about, but you know, in five or six hundred years, are people going to look back on what's happening now and just think like, "Oh, that's like, what the hell are they doing? It's so ridiculous." <laughs> I, I don't even think. I think it's like today. I mean, that's how I see it. You know, now I don't know how history is going to look at it. I, but, I heard the first currency, uh, and maybe this is just like crypto people to saying weird stuff, but uh, I heard that the first currency that is traceable in history is like, you know, several thousand years back and it was seashells or something in Africa, like, because there was only a certain amount of seashells that wash up on shore. Right. Uh, and it's laborious to go get them and the quality of them varies and like the value of them. And so seashells were used to exchange goods and services. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how is this much different in concept than that? Um, yeah. So I, again, the whole cryptocurrency craze phenomenon i mean if 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 you're a market timer you could have killed it right and you still can you know and uh i don't know what the underlying value that that's the tough part like what is the actual value it's a, essentially supply and demand function right now versus uh, you know associated with any particular asset yeah the value is what people you know i mean it's like anything like the dollar is just a piece of paper so you know kind of when it you think about something the, what's that right it, no, it certainly does represent value and, and it changes based on demand, right? Basic economics. But if you do look at the dollar, uh, yeah, it's pretty stable currency in general, right? It's, it's very stable. Yeah. Just people it's just believe a piece in of paper, it. but what it represents, right? So that's, again, the inherent value of the blockchain is that, you, yes, you can trace that one piece of paper, that particular dollar bill through its entire life cycle until it's like either destroyed or or just disappears somewhere right so again i don't want to beat it with a dead horse but a lot of value uh that's i'm a big fan of ethereum actually just be, because of the back end not necessarily the ether itself but the back end of that technology and how you can use it for multiple applications beyond just the currency uh, piece of things. Yeah, you said something right. earlier. Let's let's get to Ethereum in a second. I think we'll come full circle on that because you said something earlier about supply chain specifically and validating transactions and kind of yes. funny business with manufacturers and whatnot. And uh, the um, and then you talked about a secure database. And I think a lot of people they think of secure databases as something that you can't get into. You know, it's like really secure. The information inside of it is really secure. Right. Uh, which isn't necessarily the case with blockchain. Blockchain is no. secure in a different way in the sense That's that right. the record can't be tampered with. Everybody can see what the record is. So it's kind of That's like right. the reverse of normal security. That's true. No, and, and and again, it's it's looking at the same problem with a different solution. You're spot on, right? It's a database. And okay, you can see, you know, assuming you had access to that particular account. Yeah, you can see where it's at. You know, what stage it is, whose hands is it in right now? Whose hands was it in, you know, prior to getting here? And, you know, look, I mean, for example, in the drug business, too, uh, legal drug business, by the way, um, <laughs> pharmaceuticals, you know, it, it's a highly regulated industry. And if there are any issues or problems with a particular drug or even medical device, uh, those companies have to trace every component, every ingredient back to its origin. Right. And that's uh, very time consuming, very laborious, very expensive. Uh, and tools like the blockchain can make that much 
much easier to manage. And of course, also uh, decrease the incidence of fake drugs or copycat drugs that may not may not have gone through that same regulatory safety process, right? Uh, so gosh, it's just endless ways to use this technology that will be used, will be used. I remember I, it was uh, when it was first kind of being talked about, this was probably, you know, it seems like a long time ago uh, these days, but I want to say probably about four years ago, I remember reading an article, and it was at PwC, a big consulting firm, and they were just talking about it. I'm like, oh, now that's interesting. And they weren't referring necessarily to the currency. They were referring to the database aspect, you know, the, the, the chain, the blockchain, and all the different business applications. So we've, and there's quite a few folks working on those. Uh, in fact, probably more than the currency folks. Um, in terms of actual applications in, in the business environment. so Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of, uh, I've heard some interesting ones. Like for instance, uh, this might be the first massive commercial rollout of blockchain uh, in a really, you know, uh, let's say like a strong use case uh, is in video games. So like people spend all this money on video games. Like you go and you buy something in a video game, like you spend like $50 yeah. on some sword or something. And yeah. uh, all right, so you're done playing that game. What do you do with that sword you spent $50 on? So if it's an NFT and it's on the blockchain, right. you can put it onto you know OpenSeas or whatever marketplace, sell yeah. it as an NFT, recoup whatever yeah. amount of you know Ether or whatever, you know, USD, yeah. whatever you want to recoup yeah. at that time, and then buy sure. you know, whatever, a hand grenade in a different game. Right. It democratizes democratizes markets. For the people who have access to the market, right? Because it's only available to people who have the technology, the tools to operate that. Uh, I'm trying to remember which specific country. Uh, I believe it was Paraguay, but they committed, uh, their president committed that they would use uh, cryptocurrency as the mode of exchange. So they have an app. Most of the inhabitants have a mobile app. They may not have a laptop, but in terms of you know, going to the market and buying your goods for dinner or whatever. Uh, that's how they're pushing everybody to exchange. Yeah. Uh, Zimbabwe is another one. Their currency uh, inflated so fast. Like I actually have a, a $10 trillion Zimbabwean bill, uh, you know, <laughs> I have it in a frame uh, just to kind of like think about, you know, what is currency that I bought it on eBay for $10, funny enough. Uh, that's worth $10, I guess. But uh, at its peak of, of uh, inflation, uh, the actual conversion for that $10 trillion Zimbabwean bill was 40 USD, 40 cents USD. Yeah. So uh, it's like a reminder now, you know, it's funny, it comes back full circle. Now it's worth $10 on eBay, but uh, it comes back full full circle. It's like just to think about the concept of currency and economies, and uh, and then you know Z Zimbabwe, they're using because their currency inflated so high and essentially collapsed the economy. Uh, yeah. They're using Bitcoin now as their transaction, and everything's relative in Bitcoin. So it's you know with the price of Bitcoin fluctuating up and down, it's just kind of whatever. You know they just keep doing business. But it's in not. Bitcoin. It's not several thousand percent as yeah. the. Zimbabwean currency fluctuates. True. Right? Yeah. So I guess that Bitcoin's like a stable, uh, the most stable currency, I guess. <laughs> for them. The dollar's actually the most stable currency, but the access to it in other countries is very limited, right? Yeah. That's 
That's a fact. I think they but, use some USD in Zimbabwe too. I think it's like a mixture of USD and, and Bitcoin, but uh, you know, it, go, it goes to show you like what happens when a currency inflates and the lessons that can, that can be learned from that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've traveled the world a few times on some other people's dimes, right. For business. And I will tell you that. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam. Oh my gosh. Uh, Russia. Uh, China, not as much because of they're pretty cracked down on those sort of things. Certainly Mexico, almost every South American, Central American country. Uh, you don't need exchange currency. You just bring dollars. And they're they're fine with that. They're perfectly fine with that. Yeah, definitely uh, in Latin America. I ordered a sandwich at the airport, uh, at the Medellin uh, International Airport in Colombia. Right. It was like 50,000 Colombian pesos or something. Which was like three dollars, right, 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 right. I forgot the exact exchange, but it was something. It was in the tens of thousands of Colombian pesos, right. But, uh, hey, let's, let's go back to uh, so just real quick, so we can close the close the loop on on uh, FTX. So uh, yeah, curious what your thoughts are. Obviously, Alameda seems to be kind of the culprit here for doing these wild, you know, high leverage trades. Uh, you know, the uh, the CEO, I forget her name. Uh, uh something ellison or something i forget her name but she caroline ellison or something like that uh i guess she was doing these like wild ridiculous trades and uh you know what do you have any thoughts did you you said you saw a wall street journal article about it uh yeah i kind of broke down the chain of events as we know them anyway and what is all boiled down to the same thing it boils down to in most of these situations whether it's uh you know crypto or some other fluctuating you know asset uh, people are just greedy. I mean, it's that's all there is to it. You know, some yeah. people uh, take advantage of a situation they have and get to a point where they, you know, believe that uh, it's okay to do it. Right? They've just convinced themselves, and 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 eventually the walls come caving down. You know, it's mm. that's the thing. I mean, th- there is no hiding. Right? <laughs> it's just so transparent. And not, you know, granted, cryptocurrency in theory, and that's why it was attractive to uh, illegal money transactions or untraceable money transactions. But once you get into the markets, it, it's all transparent. And eventually, every trade, you know, yeah. every action, if you if, so. I have a friend who's uh, he's he's in Malvern, but his son is out, I think, in San Francisco or maybe they're doing like the the nomad thing. But they raised uh, almost 100 million dollars from uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Mark Benioff at Salesforce, I think, and uh, Reed Hoffman at LinkedIn uh, and okay. a few other funds. Basically, they're wow. a, a, they're a crypto blockchain uh, forensics company so i think they're working uh-huh. with governments and uh banks and whatnot and auditors to basically do like forensic analytics on uh yeah on blockchains that's amazing i'm uh, not surprising but that's amazing right and, and it i mean fundamentally aside from this instance it's uh you know in the environment that we we operate in and we're business people it really is about trying to find that inefficiency Where's the inefficiency? Where is that better mousetrap? How can, what, what's something that's going to make it easier to do something that I did before, uh, faster, less expensive? Uh, that's the genesis of all these things. And so there you go. You know, there's a, there's a company that, 
you know, saw saw that crypto uh, could be a, used illegally, and there was a party, happened to be governments, who were interested in finding out who these people were or the forensics behind it, and now you have a business. It's funny they actually they pivoted into that. So they started doing. Uh, this was back in the ICO days when everyone was doing the uh, the ICOs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Before yeah. the SEC yeah. stepped in, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So they started out as an analytics platform to help you figure out how to launch your ICO and like maximize the invest, you know, it's something to have to do with ICOs. And then that whole market just dried up and evaporated. And I think they'd already raised a little bit of money by then. Yeah. So they quickly yeah. pivoted into the forensics business. And that seems to be doing well from what I can tell. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it makes me think of, uh, I mean, I had this, maybe it's a terrible idea, but it just occurred to me with uh you know the blockchain I, I don't know why i was thinking this but if i wanted to record a video to my family and i only wanted them to see it after i was gone i didn't want anybody to see it until then i just thought hmm there's a potential business you could record that video and be protected you know by the blockchain the uh ownership and it would only be triggered once I, I don't know, you know, a death certificate or something is is happens. And uh, otherwise, no one you would be confident that nobody at any stage, at any point, any parties would see any of that until such time that you were gone. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you talked about Ethereum It's kind of like a programmatic lawyer in a way. You know, it's got, uh, yeah. you know, the kind of like the what we hire lawyers to do, like negotiate back and forth and write contracts and then make sure the contracts are upheld by the, you know, the spirit of the contract. But, uh, you know, it's a little bit more qualitative or kind of subjective in the, you know, in real life, you know, know, attorney lawyer space, whereas Ethereum's more quantitative. It's very much like A, B, C, very linear, you know, yeah, uh, binary really. Yeah. I, I mean, you're right. I mean, there'd be a lot of, I suppose, uh, legal services that could certainly make sure that the right people get the right asset. Yeah. No matter what. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff like, you know, I I think about right now, I've been, there's so many technologies that are maturing right now. We haven't had a ton of innovation other than just tools getting, you know, marginally better over the last decade. There hasn't been, you know, the last major innovation in my eyes was smartphones. That was kind of the last like game changer. But I think, you know, the last decade has been kind of status quo or just slow growth. I think the next decade is going to be insane. And <laughs> uh, I think I think about it like it's 19, uh, like the Model T came out in like 1908. So I think about it, it's like 1905 uh, for, like <laughs> you know, horseshoe manufacturers right now. Uh, I've been yeah. looking into uh, the open AI codex API oh. that just came out. Uh, it's in beta right now. And basically it's I, I've, da- I've, I've had a. I've made a bunch of pictures. It's it's so cool. You're using Dolly then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's three APIs. Uh, there's three main ones. There's Dolly, which is the image generation API. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. GPT-3, which is the natural language processing. And GPT-4 is on its way out. Uh, and then there's um, Codex, which basically is like the first two, but for writing software. So you can give They're it like instructions. Maps, right? Yeah, exactly. You give it instructions and it writes code for you in any language. And uh, there's already tools being built on it. And like right now, it's still kind of infant where um, 
you know, it's not super strong yet where, you know, it, you have to start to sort of do it like function by function and you have to kind of like yeah. piece together the application. It doesn't always write the cleanest code, but sure. the fact that it's doing that right now in 10 years, I think it'll be strong enough where you could say like, Hey, I have an HVAC company. We're regional. We're in these three States. We've got 150 trucks. Uh, here's access to our, you know, quoting uh, repository, go analyze all the quotes over the last 20 years and build me a CRM and a point of sale system. And uh, it'll come back and just give it to you. Like, I think it could be that strong in 10 years. And, well, that's got to uh, make you nervous. What's that? That's got to make you nervous. No, I think it's an opportunity. So uh, okay. like there's opportunities to build tools. There's opportunities to, uh, you know, be the companies that are consulting on these technologies because, you know, businesses still don't know what they need. They still need, uh, from a services perspective, they're, they're still going to need people that know how to use these tools. So you can see this as a threat and be scared of it and do nothing. Or, you know, if you're in my industry, in the software services industry, uh, or you can see this as a wave that, you know, you can surf if you get on your board right before the wave hits. Kind of like that startup uh, you mentioned in in uh, San Francisco, right? That was originally part of the uh, helping people float their individual uh, Bitcoin, you know, their, their their cryptocurrency, right? And then they pivoted to uh, providing the forensics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think there, there's a company that's already positioning for this, uh, Turing.com. Uh, the name kind of says it all, but uh, they're a staff augmentation company. They do, you know, basically what my company does, like software development services, projects, staff augmentation. Uh, they raised $153 million in the last few years at a $1.1 billion valuation. Uh, they've got about a hundred, they've got about 1400 employees. I was just looking at their, I just did a tweet thread about this last night. So I was looking at their metrics last night. They're all fresh in my head. I think they've got like 1400 employees. So, and about 20% of them are in the United States. A lot of them are like in Pakistan, India, Latin America. Sure. So yeah. a company like that Eastern typically, yeah. yeah, Eastern Europe, yeah, a company like that typically does about a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars per employee per year mm -hmm. revenue. Uh, so like you know, if, even if you go on the high end, one hundred fifty k, they're doing like just over two hundred million in revenue based on their headcount. And uh, right. if they have like extremely healthy EBITDA at twenty percent, I'm I'm giving them a lot of like really. You know, if if we're going on the high end of 150k yeah. per per employee per per year, and like 20% EBITDA, probably not happening in growth mode. Uh, but yeah. let's just say they are. They're north of 200 million, just north of 200 million, uh, with maybe like 40 million dollars in EBITDA. So, like, how did they get to a 1.1 as a services company? How did they get to a 1.1 billion dollar valuation? And keep in mind that valuation was December of 21. Uh, right. before uh, when their headcount was lower, their headcount was less than a thousand at the time of that valuation. Right. So in all reality, when they raised at that $1.1 billion valuation, they probably had like eight, 900 employees and probably their EBITDA was, I'm going to guess, I'm just going to guess less than 10 million. Right. So like, how do they get to a $1.1 billion valuation? Well, my theory is that they are pitching the VCs uh, and VCs don't fund services companies typically, by the way. They're funding platform and SaaS and yeah. biotech. Yep. So yeah. uh, my theory is that they said, we're going to go out and blitz the market and get all the MSAs on staff augmentation right now. And we're going to quietly work on uh, this, you know, open AI, you know, code generation, GPT-4, you know, codex get stuff. Our, and get our 150,000 up to 200,000 or whatever per employee, right? 
Yeah, and then and then as soon as as soon as this technology is good enough, we'll flip the switch and we'll probably cut headcount and increase output. And uh, you know, next thing you know, we're gonna be you know we've already blitzed the market for this, so we'll become the largest software services company in the world. Uh, you know, we'll become the next Accenture. Like that's that's what I think yeah. they probably pitched uh, to the VCs. Otherwise, how do you raise it? Like that, the valuation doesn't make sense to me. Otherwise, unless VCs yeah. are really just trying to figure out wherever they can stuff money at the time. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, acquisitions too, right? So yeah. Maybe they're so yeah, it's just interesting theory I have. We'll see. We'll see if it plays out. Uh, you know, it's either I started the tweet thread out by saying either this company is going to become the largest software services company in the world, or VCs are just throwing money at whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, you know one of the topics that I wanted to talk about is at least my three rules or lessons from startups. Right. And lesson number one is most don't they don't start up right they go out of business yeah. so as long as uh the folks who are considering or are involved accept that reality okay take step two but uh i think there's so much hype around you know these billion and a half valuations and you know kind of this newer technology which obviously makes some sense but in the end, if the fundamental, if if you're if you're a capitalist, I'm a capitalist, okay, I've, I am, uh, and I'm I'm looking to buy low, sell high, right, or provide uh, a service that is unique or certainly differentiated enough in the markets that I work with that allow me to uh, provide that service, right, at a at a higher rate than maybe my competitors. Uh, and it's looking for um, inefficiencies in the marketplace. And, it, and in my case, it's about scaling scaling organizations, you know, for sales, right? Increasing sales at companies. And uh, there's so many opportunities that don't really require the risk of uh, kind of the startup, the slash venture capital kind of revenue that it's... It's uh, I don't know it it doesn't it gets all the attention, but it's not the reality of the world. It's not the reality of the day to day. Yeah, most companies don't raise a ton of VC money. I mean, VC money typically goes to companies that value on top line, not EBITDA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's it's distorted and I think over uh, emphasized, and when particularly younger folks. Um, I, I did this lecture. I did one lecture at Warden, but that was more on different sales models. But I also did a lecture more recently at Temple University. The uh, interesting thing is that many schools finally have started to offer like professional sales as a degree. I never right? understood that. I mean, it's uh, I, sales is the most. Heard. It's it's the most important skill you can possibly have in business. Even if you're not a salesperson, it's the most important skill. And why does it not? You know, like the most important skills don't get taught for some reason. I, yeah, I mean, of course, you get finance, accounting, HR, right? Marketing, um, all those different and important uh, areas. But right, top line. 
But um, if you're in, uh, let's say you're you're in HR, let's say you, you come out of college and you get a, you have an HR degree and you go in and you're working as an intern or like an entry level, you know, HR analyst or something, and mm-hmm. your dream is to be the CHRO of that company, mm-hmm. uh, you better have sales skills to be able to sell yourself all the way up the ladder if you want to get to that role. That's true. Everybody's in sales, right? Um, everybody. And it's not, it's a great point. And it's not just your company's products or services, it's yourself and the value you bring to the table, right? There's, yeah, it's a skill, you know, and there's certainly some gamesmanship around it as well. But what I was um, getting at was in terms of startups, uh, and I've been uh, VP of sales of two venture capital backed startups, but I've also worked with quite a few VC backed startups, uh, all technology. Uh, the one that I wanted to talk about in terms of failures was a company that uh, we actually garnered about $60 million at the time from Bank of Boston, DLJ, and um, Oracle, right? So it was, a, it was a raise, and it was right before the internet bubble. So we're going back oh, well. 20 years, right? So How much is- total did you guys raise there? Uh, it was $60 million. Right. Well, until we spent every dime. Yeah. It was a lot of money, but money was cheap and free. You know, it was easy. It was the go-go internet days. And, you know, people didn't really have their heads around what it really meant. I remember uh, one of the clients we had was was Johnson & Johnson, obviously a big global enterprise. And uh, they created these roles like because people just didn't know what to do or what it was necessarily. And these roles were, uh, you know, director of internet, right? <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, we're laughing now, right? But I even then I'm thinking, they don't really understand, they don't get it, right? It's not like a thing. It's not like a new department, you know? Oh man, that's uh, great. Uh, so yeah. what, what did the company do? Like, what was the, what was the product? Yeah, they, they had a great value proposition uh, and they were in the right market too. Basically the concept was, all right, all and it was focused in the life science kind of pharmaceutical industry. So that's another key thing, right? They're going at an industry that has lots of money, right? It's kind of fundamental, but if you want to make money, you got to work with people who can spend the money. Uh, and specifically in the marketing organizations of these global enterprises, they had data, patient data, and it was marketing, not clinical data. So it was, you know, after the product had been released uh, into the marketplace, Uh, you know, prescription data by physicians, you know, hospitals, just all of that data. And they would have in different divisions, a separate budget for different data, but oftentimes it would one be the same kind of data. So were you guys uh, up against like MicroStrategy? Was that a big competitor of yours back then? No, no, it was not. So they basically just tied all of these disparate databases into one and then pr- created this uh user interface that the you know the marketing person because it because you didn't have to be a, a software person to use it that was the tool right if you want to look up diabetes for example and you could get all of the data that your different databases had and into different kind of spans it's so business intelligence though it was business intelligence but it wasn't they weren't really creating any business intelligence. They were just consolidating, right? All it's of their like business. It's like the same concept. Like you have disparate systems, you build ETLs, you dump it into a data warehouse. So you have a central yeah. 
you know, central data lake or whatever, and yep. then you put yep. a dashboard on top of the data lake yep. and then pull out some sort of reporting for the executives. That's right. That's what it was. So at the time, you know, and conceptually, I mean, I kind of refer to it, it was the Google of uh, uh, pharmaceutical marketing data in that respect, right? That was kind of, Google wasn't around really much then, but in retrospect, that's effectively what it was. Uh, so the problem, however, was that in order to be competent using it as a marketing person who wasn't a software person, the amount of time required to train that person was just insane. And I, I figured it out after being there not quite a year because it all started to, hmm, all right, we have a problem here. <laughs> I figured, In fact, I had the notes right here. It would take 91 years to train the total number of people we needed in terms of licenses, right? Because wow. it was also by, you know, it's kind of the, the SaaS model, basically. With, is that 91 man years with your current team that you have in place now? I well, mean, back just, then, like at the time of saying that, like yeah, with the yeah. team, the training team you have, this is how much. Even if you, yes, it, it was really based on the amount of time. Uh, that's correct. 91 years was based on the number of people we had. But even if you quadrupled the number of those people to do the training, well, now you have costs that are far beyond the, you know, a profitable business, right? Yeah. So that was the the kind of the end of that. As soon as uh, you told me what the product was, I immediately thought, wow, that's like, you guys were early. You were ahead of your time. We were early. Uh, and again, it, it was actually um, an Israeli-based uh, software company that was VC-backed, you know, in the U.S. Uh, and the CEO, very excellent visionary, excellent storyteller, which is fine, which is good, right? He really could tell a, a true story and what the problem was. and how you know we would be able to fix or address that problem um so that was the that's the number two rule within startups because he had never done a startup and most of the people there at the senior level leadership uh hadn't had not done a startup so rule number two is every member of the leadership team needs to have prior experience whether successful or unsuccessful experience is experience you know uh, in a previous startup. And if they don't have that, uh, you're going to run into problems that someone who's done that before had already tackled, seen, knew how to dealt, deal with, or better yet, would avoid it to begin with. Uh, not all of them, because they're uh, always new. What's that? Do you care if it's venture-backed startup or bootstrap startup or just any startup? or Any startup, any startup. You know, if you're going to start from the ground level, like I got this great idea for whatever it is. Okay, fantastic. Um, and uh, the the third rule is pretty is more financial. It's like their expected year one cash burn cannot exceed what is in the bank today. So you know you can't hope for success, right? You can't hope that you know you're able to get additional funding, whether VC or or wherever. Obviously, customer revenue is is the way to go um and that's the other thing too you know once you get institutional money like vcs or private equity well obviously they're not doing it because they're good people which okay they are they're doing it because they want to make money so that's what speeds up the pull i remember uh at skila 
the, the CEO at the time was not, the founder was kind of more that, the founder and the spokesperson, but they were smart and they hired, uh, you know, professional leadership team, professional management team. And I was on the sales side. And uh, I remember talking to the CEO. He's like, oh, we got to spend all of this money now. Like, just, we got to spend it because it was in the bank. And that's, you know, we got it. We had to show that we were investing. In it. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty, but there were a lot of red flags there. Uh, the fourth rule, which is not part of my top three, but I, I'll throw it in there because it was sage advice I'd gotten years before that is always negotiate your way out on your way in. <laughs> always yeah so if you're going to take with a leadership role what's that with the investors or with any anything with the company with the investors whatever you know if if you're going to join a, there's kind of two sides to this if you're going to join a company these are critical questions if you're going to invest into a company this is also important questions but if you're going to be part of that team uh and you're senior enough then yeah, you need to negotiate your way out on your way in. Because that's the only, and that's true with any position, I guess. Because uh, that's the only time you have leverage. Yeah, interesting. Because once the, you know, the rails start coming off, uh, you know, the train tracks, it's kind of too late, you know. <laughs> For the partners, that should be in the operating agreement. But, you know, and just kind of like general, general business engagements, I, I see what you're saying there. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that served me well because uh, I've also done. Um, I, I I did another startup, and I will talk about that. It was a very successful one. This one was uh, a European uh, venture capital firm. They were also in the life science space, and their value proposition was powerful and simple. And it was simply, we can help you get products to market faster. Okay. All right, I'm listening. Well, how are you going to do that, right? And again, it it dealt that that's a fundamental problem that any pharmaceutical or biotech, if they're get you know at in in their phase three uh, type trials, right? Yeah, they this, the faster they can get it to the market, the better benefit not only to the patients, obviously, if it's a safe and efficacious. What uh, what year was that for that that type of? Uh, this was uh, I'm going to say. This was now we are in 2005, 2008 timeframe. That's a really yeah. vague, unique selling proposition. It's like... Uh... Well, and that was kind of the, the fundamental. Now, their their specific target market was regulatory affairs. And this was prior, believe it or not, to the FDA digitizing all of the data. Because you have to keep in mind that when they do a, a phase three trial, there could literally be a million pages documents a million right because you have all the patient records and the talks and just that's how big some of these can be and uh the fda uh requires that in triplicate so literally when the company's like okay we're going to submit it right a tractor trailer shows up forklifts lift these three um boxes you know into this tractor trailer and one goes to maryland another one goes there's two two other sites that they're delivered to so okay now it's submitted per se now, when the toxicology group, all right, it's their, their job to look at the tox, toxicology data. Well, they call down or email down to that particular warehouse and someone at the warehouse goes and gets a little forklift and gets those boxes of information, puts them on a van. And it's, you know, literally 
sent to that office and it sits in a box and somebody's, you know, the toxicology office person who's responsible for that. That's a, that, that was the process, right? The paper process. So what this tool did, and it was kind of a, a variation on uh, Adobe, but you could actually change the page numbers. It was very simple and pay and change kind of some of the content on the fly right up to the, literally the day that you submitted it. So it was a way to, because they would change things. They got additional data or there was, you know, they were constantly right up to the last minute, they, there'd be changes because it was a, yeah, it was a scramble to get this thing, you know, to uh, the FDA for submission. So that's, that was their value proposition. Uh, so it was a great tool for that market. And uh, the the problem when I uh, took over because they were they were not pre revenue when I started but they were pre profit. Obviously, the goal was to get to sustainable profitability, and it was in their sales process. Uh, and they had hired some very uh, talented, uh, experienced people uh, who understood you know that regulatory affairs environment, which is its own animal in itself. Uh, and the expectation before I got there was that those same people would go and get meetings, you know, for, with other regulatory affairs professionals at these companies to explain what this is and the value. And it was a sales process thing because, uh, you know, I, I've yet to hear someone uh, convince me that this is not true and that sales is about one thing and one thing only. It's about the number of at bats. You know, the more often we get an opportunity to speak to, someone who may have a benefit of the value we have to offer, the more often that can occur, the, the higher likelihood that they're going to say, hmm, you know. I argue the quality, though, the quality of the process. Well, ah, that's the key. That's that's the science and that's the art. It has to be quality at bats, right? So in their case, they knew who the personas were, like the, the, the influencers and decision makers. And we knew, you know, certain trigger points when they moved into the, certain part of the phase three trial. So, there, you know, we had enough of that good data as far as the customer journey, um, where to insert ourselves. You knew your buyer, but, essentially. What's that? You knew your buyer. Yeah, we did. We did. We did good homework on the buyer in that, in that industry and in, in that particular uh, uh, product. But uh, getting those appointments was the challenge. So all we did was we added, you know, this is, again, going back now, it's commonplace. Basically, I call it the secret weapon inside sales, which now would be called BDRs, business development reps or SDRs, right? And their job was just to get the appointments. You know, now we're talking to the right people who have the same the problem we could potentially fix, but because all they did all day long was try to get these appointments, uh, it was just at bats, at bats, at bats, and you know, we would get more appointments. Now we send in once the appointment is secured, a little bit of qualification, the uh, you know the, the the true kind of content expert, you know that was that was expensive, and so they spent all of their time taking the ball and getting it across the finish line versus doing stuff that wasn't value add relative to their cost, and they weren't terribly good at it either. <laughs> So, so what, what were your SDRs doing to get these appointments? Like, were they just doing cold calling and emailing or were they doing something like creative and interesting out of the box? It, well, I tell you, it was just block and tackle. It was emails and calls, you know, yeah. and LinkedIn really 
I mean, it was there, but it wasn't a tool that was really used effectively as far as uh, net, well, networking, certainly, but as far as prospecting is concerned. So it was just that. Yeah. It was and just if you that. have a really targeted niche, you know, that you, you understand your ICP and your buyer really well, and you have a targeted yeah. niche, it's not just like spray and pray kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you can get, uh, even still today, to this day, you can get appointments through email, cold email with a, you, a really you message. Can. Yeah. And that's a whole other conversation of what is working, what isn't working, um, because it's got certainly gotten harder to you know get the eyeballs, the mind uh, time with with prospects. Yeah, they're getting dated with so much. Um, uh, I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, yeah, I've never asked you this before. You've, you've got a lot of interesting, uh, you know, uh, history in, in your career. Uh, just even on this, you know, call here so far, we, we've touched on a, a few, uh, you know, cool periods of of what you've worked on. Uh, what was the most exciting year? Like the most exciting company, most exciting time, you know, the craziest, the, the coolest, the funnest uh, time for you in your career? I would say two of them. One was the CDC solutions, which I just mentioned. Uh, because eventually, you know, things, it, it clicked. And now we're generating more revenues. Now we be, we finally became actually profitable and sustainably so because it was a license model. Uh, and yeah, then then we- You were VP being, of sales there, I think? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, okay. yeah. So you're kind of the guy in charge of figuring out how to make it click and how to, you know, feed the mouths in the company. That's right. I mean, my job was to generate as much, you know, re profitable revenue, profitable revenue as quickly as, you know, possible. Yeah, with the least amount of resources. <laughs> right. Well, not that it's complicated. It's just that's that's the role, right? I'm, I wasn't in uh, R and D, right? I wasn't in engineering. I wasn't in, you know, that that my job was top line. You know, make it happen. Uh, which is, by the way, why the average B2B sales leader at companies, uh, it, it, average lifespan is 19 months. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. yeah, it's really low for a VP of sales. Mm -hmm. How do you run a company with, uh, with you know, how do you run a company with no, uh, you know, continuity? Yeah, consistency. Uh, that's why, you know, a lot of companies struggle, you know, and it, and it doesn't matter again that's your job right so it could be a product that's not terribly good it could be uh kind of out of date there could be competitors that have come in and offered a better solution um is that a symptom of poor leadership from the ceo though if you've got vps of sales turning over every 19 months is that because you have the wrong product the wrong service the wrong message the wrong market uh just the wrong comp package for your vp of sales uh yeah is there once something uh yeah, I mean, certainly you, you could point to that. And, you know, all companies, even though private companies aren't, you know, the information isn't public, you know, they still are, are driven by boards and they're looking at each quarter, right? And if there's if if there's two quarters that don't hit the mark, uh, well, who's responsible? What do you do? Well, usually marketing, you know, resources get shot first. And then, then they shoot the VP of sales because they don't want to, they're not going to shoot themselves. Okay, so that's interesting. I thought uh, I, when you said that earlier, I was my head went to they're leaving and like just like the VP of sales is quitting and going to a different firm. Uh, what's the percentage of the time you think of those 19 month uh, averages? What's the percentage of that where they're getting let go for poor for poor performance versus uh, you know them leaving on their own accord? 
uh, it, it would probably, I don't know the exact number, but it's definitely the much greater percentage in being let go because again, it, it starts to become political. Sales aren't where the company expected them to be for whatever reason, doesn't matter. And uh, there's a couple of board meetings and the question to the CEO is, okay, what are you going to do? What's your plan? All right. They don't know other than, hmm, I need to take some sort of action. And that's yeah. usually the VP of sales. Well, this is a good place, I think, to like insert a plug for what you do. Uh, <laughs> if you want to talk a little bit about what Innovo Sales does and kind of how you guys yeah. work with companies and uh, and why companies might want to think about working with a firm like yours? Yes. Yeah. No, thank you, Brian. appreciate that. Uh, we work with B2B companies, first of all. And we work with the leadership team, typically the CEO, the founder. And our focus is predominantly small to mid-sized companies. We we don't do a lot of work with startups. Uh, I have done some, uh, and I can talk a little bit about that more recently. But uh, you know, startups typically don't have money, and we don't work for free. So they're they're typically private equity owned portfolio companies, or just any company that. The CEO believes that we got to get more sales for whatever reason. And uh, oftentimes, those companies, the founders, CEOs kind of built that company up to 10 million, which is in itself a phenomenal uh, accomplishment, right? To, to get to that level of anything, to even be in business after five years, you've beaten the odds and then to be at 10 million. So I don't want to take anything away from those folks, but they, they say, look, we want to get to the next level. All right. They What's haven't the been level, to like that. 50 or 25. Well, if you're at 10, you, you should, you know, you should be realistic. 15, 20, right? You know, you can't say, oh, I want to be, uh, you know, I'm at 10 million and I want to be at 100 million. Now, if uh, I had actually a startup, it was a SaaS company, worked with them for a year and a half. They went public, which I knew was a mistake just based on my experience, but they did. Uh, and then the doo-doo started hitting the fan there because they weren't, they weren't ready for it. But I'll give an example. In that case, uh, it was it was look. We need to double our sales now. This company, even though it was a, a software company, uh, they actually had been around, but the, for a while, but they'd never really capitalized on the market or leveraged um, what they had. So they wanted to go public and get those resources, money, and really pull the trigger on expansion for the particular uh, product. That they were involved with they actually had four different products uh and the ceo said look we want to double in size in one year all right well, i hear that and my first thought in my head is well that's great get in line who doesn't right but my first question i asked them is all right let's say for some reason unknown to us we open our laptops tomorrow morning and Lo and behold, there are you know license agreements, you know basically contracts, orders, whatever you want to call it, that represent twice the revenue we had in the last twelve months. There it is. What would happen? What would you do? Right? How would things change operationally? It's one of those "be careful what you wish for" situations because uh, if if that by chance did happen. Obviously, the the uh, the level of service, you know, for implementation that have to be ramped up, you know, the the uh, tickets that uh, that are coming in from 
issues from customers would balloon. Now you have that group that needs to have to be ready. In the end, you know, your existing customers would get a much lower level of service, quality service, and your new customers that you brought on uh, are going to be disappointed because they didn't aren't getting what you said they were going to get, right? It would be a shit show, basically, yeah. in most cases. Now, That's interesting. Look, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I would say, okay, so now, now that we have that premise, now let's take it out one year. If we know and we shoot for that, it's not just getting the revenue. I mean, not that that's easy, but okay, let's say we do. We we have to think through how does this ripple through the organization? You know, so I was tasked and I, we put together, uh, we ended up hiring, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember because this finished up at the end of this August. And I created a, you know, a new sales organization where we broke down different roles and responsibilities. We we put everybody in product groups or four different products versus being all over the place, which they were before. Uh, they had BDRs, but we needed more. So we outsourced some of that as well because uh, we did a good job of man managing metrics. We understood kind of, okay, if we get this amount of appointments, it results in this amount of you know quotes and and here's our close rate and, and the amount of time that takes because these were this was a longer term strategic sales process. It was not transactional at all. Uh, so we put the, and we add, you know, we, we also expanded into Europe. So we got an organization, uh, set up there. Uh, I wasn't directly involved with that. I, well, I was directly involved in hiring the people, but we had got a, uh, a German law firm to put all the paperwork together. Uh, that was their specialty to create, you know, an entity in Germany. Uh, we already had some presence in APEC, uh, but we had to increase that. Bottom line is we, was this whole organization. And now we also needed <clears throat> folks that would support, um, you know, the, the, the training element, right? It had to be now a separate kind of role and responsibility. They had zero um, strategy around channel, which was a huge opportunity for this company because they were small. And if you could leverage your uh, technology through the Accentures, the PWCs, and even the mid-tier players uh that's just that's going to really help drive revenue over time so that was another hire um so we started to execute and sure enough back at the office it started to get manic and it was it, there's always going to be uh there's never going to be a situation we have unlimited resources because if that's the case you know, you have other problems. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, I, I totally get it. My company. Grew, it's a balance. Uh, yeah. And your business. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? You, yeah. you don't want to have people sitting on the bench, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we had the opposite problem most of this year. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily have people sitting on the bench, but we had, we grew 80% this year and uh, we basically built out uh, a ton of leadership and operating uh, people that are, you know, at general administrative on our P&L, they're not billable. So uh, yeah, you know, well, we smart. grew a ton top line, but our EBITDA percentage uh, went down. Uh, you know, we, we dollar amount, we, you know, we're up yeah. a little bit, but, you know, from last year, but, you know, percentage wise, we're way down. And it's because of smart. the, uh, you know, the investment in, in OPEX. That's right. That's right. And it's so critical because, yeah, getting them in the door, you know, if you're getting the quality at bats is one thing, but now you actually have to do the hard work of, delivering right and keeping them happy and, and and in a perfect world 
so happy that they want to refer you or use you for additional projects, which I think speaking to you in the past, Brian, that's one of the big growth drivers for your firm is, is existing customers, right? Well, we do. I mean, we get a lot of referrals and stuff from existing customers and we, you know, ton of repeat business. We don't really, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of churn with customers, very little, uh, single digit percents, but, uh, you know, we've got, uh, you know, we've got a, a outreach engine. Over fifty percent of our new revenue comes from uh, outreach, cold email. That's great. Uh, you know, just doing out outbounding of various types, LinkedIn, sure, uh, conference sure. outbounding, all, all sorts of stuff like that. No, that's fantastic. That's that's really a great. Uh, so I imagine you focus on any particular service or any particular uh, vertical or. Yeah, we're highly specialized in the Laravel and Vue.js ecosystem and then enterprise WordPress. So we've kind of just focused on those ecosystems. Uh, We used to be more wide. And then I've just over the years just chiseled away all the things that aren't our core focus and just got really specific on those core technology focuses. A lot of it's B2B, uh, you know, a lot of it's SaaS companies. Some of it's more like, you know... Uh, you know, uh, like logistics or, you know, uh, manufacturing more like, you know, kind of traditional types types of companies but uh and the, has the size uh the you know top line of the companies that you work with continually yeah moved up? that's beautiful so you yeah. guys are on definitely that, that's that's a great story and uh i wish more folks would approach it the same way <laughs> well it's funny because sure. you, you brought up earlier like the goal was to uh you know, you brought up this story and you're like, yeah, the, the, the person says, I just want to double, uh, next year. And, uh, what I've found is companies that are growing that fast or faster, typically, uh, maybe they say set goals like that, but I think a lot of the times, you know, a story that popped in my head, it's really old, but, uh, the, the, uh, Rothschilds. So, uh, they figured out like currency arbitrage. I think it was in the 1800s. Maybe it was late 1700s. I don't know the, the years, but they figured out <laughs> currency arbitrage and they invented bonds. So they had <laughs> essentially back then you, you tra- information travels by horse. So they created right. the fastest information sharing network, uh, on the, on the planet at the time. And right. were able to arbitrage currencies across countries and cities because they had the fastest traveling information. Right. And, right. Uh, I heard a story that, uh, or I was reading something that they were making so much money so fast, they didn't have any accounting. They were just like, you know, the the way that the the story, the person telling the story shared it was, imagine you go into one of those machines with like dollar bills flying around and you're just grabbing as many as you can. And then you walk out <laughs> right. of the machine and like, you just have yeah. a handful of money and someone says, how much, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. someone says, it's hey, how much money story. do you have? And you're like, I don't know. I just grabbed as much as I could. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, Yeah. And that's so with this particular company, that was the issue. And so when you ask about what we do, the first thing we typically do, in fact, it's the first thing we do do uh, is an assessment. And we really want to understand, okay, before we get in there, it's like a doctor. I think doctors are the best salespeople because they spend so much time learning before they diagnose. They want, information, 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 and start connecting dots and they come to a conclusion or a reasonable one or a couple options possibly uh, before they prescribe a you know a treat. Right. We're the same way as 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 any I think good consulting firm should be. So we have a, a 
I would say proprietary uh, question and answer, uh, multiple choice that is given to the leadership team, you know, folks in sales and marketing. And there's no wrong answers. It's really just level setting things. We want to know where you are today. We want to understand what market you're in. Is the demand overall increasing the same or decreasing, right? What is the tide in your market space doing? Uh, and we do quite a lot of interviews with these folks to validate what we're starting to see. Uh, and we gather lots of data, you know, CRM data, uh, compensation plans, uh, just lots of data. And really, in the end, we just want to level set. Where are we today? What is our current sales strategy? What are, the, what are our current sales processes? What is our current sales organization structure and people look like? And what are the metrics that this company is looking at, which they believe drive the needle in the direction they want it to go? So once we have that, that exercise, then now we can make some therapeutic recommendations. And that's the output of the first portion of it. And we have a very detailed, uh, prioritized uh, set of actions to take. And uh, oftentimes with the companies we work with, they don't necessarily have someone who's kind of got been at that next level. Or if they do, those folks just don't have time to kind of put all these pieces, you know, to implement them. A lot of legwork, you know, uh, a lot of infrastructure stuff, pieces that have to be put in place. So you've always uh, so, uh, struck me as just a no bullshit guy. So, I mean, do you, <laughs> you go in and, uh, you know, like how quickly will you call the baby ugly? You know, if the CEO's baby's ugly, just, you know, will you just say it, like call it out and say, hey, the baby's ugly. This is what we need to do. Or. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, uh, before we engage with any client, uh, there's a couple couple things I do ahead of time. Uh, but But one is I ask two questions. To the CEO, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to tell you what you'd like to hear? And every time they say, oh, no, 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 we want the truth. Okay, good. You have that understanding. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, and it oftentimes comes to bite them later, but uh, that's part of that uh, initial process, particularly with the questionnaires in these different areas. Uh, and this isn't necessarily a sales thing. It's more of a leadership thing because you may see in an area where the CEO is scoring things here, but the rest of the team is scoring things here. That doesn't mean either one is wrong. That just means there's the communication is off mm. because of the leadership, all of the folks in the leadership team are not kind of, uh, in sync with what our value proposition is, what our goals are. There's no way in heck the rest of the organization is going to get there, right? So part of it's just that. Is that the entire yes, leadership team, or do you focus mostly on like go-to-market team members? Uh, or, well, the, it, it's involving the senior leadership team. They have to be involved because they need to know, and, and they're going to be the ones who are going to make decisions. We're going to make unilateral decisions for them, but we want if we recommend something, they obviously have some input, or we have to sell them on why because. So like the uh, CFO just, gets involved in in this kind of like sales exercise. Oh yeah, absolutely. Marketing CFO. I mean, this literally the yeah, we had another uh, client was fairly recent. They were a distributor, but they distributed uh, commercial cooking and commercial refrigeration equipment up and down the East Coast. 
about a $65 million top line company. And um, yeah, I got referred in because it was a private equity portfolio company. They had uh, shit the bed uh, the year before and the bank was getting nervous and sent in a colleague of mine's kind of a turnaround person. Mm -hmm. And they did a nice job, stabilized things. And then uh, this colleague said, hey, you now you need to focus on top line. And that's what they brought me in. Uh, yeah, so spent hours and hours and hours with the uh, CFO and CEO, right? And the other folks in the membership, uh, in the leadership team, because so it was, was that like impact. CFO that was, you know, sometimes CFOs are kind of like hybrid CFO, COO. Was that kind of the case in that in that one? Or Yeah, and oftentimes that is the case because of the size of the companies. Uh, and and these they were distributors. And if you get into manufacturing, yeah, they'll typically have a dedicated person who's, you know, COO uh, and, and a CFO. Um, the CFO is usually trying to manage, uh, you know, the, the, their investors. So in this case, it was private equity. Private equity wanted to get out, and we needed to generate uh, a minimum of two consistent quarters of revenue and profit growth because they wanted, obviously wanted to get their EBITDA up so that they could get a more attractive multiples. So that, that was the plan. You know, we need to sell this company. You got to fix stuff. So sometimes working with PE, they just want to like gut everything. They just want to go in and just like slash, slash heads and just, you know, get the, you know, get the, uh, the gap on, you know, margin higher so that you can just kind of show it on paper and then just, you know, hand it off to someone else and make it their problem. Uh, were they one of those types of firms or were they more, uh, did they see kind of like the value in building a good company? Uh, well, I think all of them recognize the value of building a good, sustainable company, because if you can demonstrate that with the numbers, it becomes more valuable. Uh, but typically, you know, in that PE model, if they buy multiple companies, you know, sure, we can standardize. We don't need one or, pardon me, HR departments in every of these acquisitions, all the acquisitions. We have one, you know, counting the same way and other departments. So that's where they see kind of the benefits. but the private equity folks uh they're they're not operators they they don't kind of dig into the day-to-day like how do you do it so they're obviously numbers driven and they're financial people so yeah they see a cost and it's like how do we reduce that cost and yeah you know at the board level it's sometimes where i'll go in and kind of pitch the case like here's why we can't reduce that cost because there's a we actually need to increase that cost because here's the return on investment. Now, will you realize that in the first, maybe even second quarters? No, but what you're looking to do is, you know, the third, fourth quarter and beyond is where the payoff is, right? And, you know, there are people that are reasonable. Um, so that's, that's where, uh, that's where like this, we, you know, we talked about sales skills earlier, you know, teaching sales skills in, in school, obviously you're in the sales department, so you should have sales skills, hopefully, but, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, imagine if you're in say like the logistics department and you need to, you know, explain why you need to increase the cost to the private equity, you know, chairman right. or whatever, or to the yeah. board of a private equity firm, you need to explain yes. why you need to increase the cost. But, you know, you're just like a person who's skilled on the technical aspects of, you know, organizing logistics and supply chain, and you don't have those sales skills to be able to explain why this cost needs to go up to a, yeah. a situation like that. That's actually, that's, that's very, very true. And uh, not that I want to stereotype too much, but I see that in uh, technology and software companies, right? We have some folks who just know their technology inside now, 
as they should, but they're not the best communicators, you know, particularly when it comes to the board or, you know, the, the organization as a whole, right? Uh, and you get to a certain point and that's where you have to look at look at yourself, look at your company, and maybe there's someone else who should be leading this company. You know, I, I'll continue to do what I do. I enjoy doing what I do. I'm good at what I'm doing. I do. I'm not going to, you know, forsake any equity necessarily, but I don't have to be, and nor should I be, the face of the organization. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that was one of my kind of things. That some notes I put down is uh, where companies, you know, struggle, uh, and that's, you know, they 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 have to be unemotional, and that's easier said than done. You know, you build this business; it's your baby, right? You started it from the beginning, and and you've done every job and every job relatively well, but you can't continue to do that. Uh, just the amount of information that changes so quickly, it's just not feasible to kind of be on top of those things. And so this, jerk, this jerk Mark comes in and, uh, you know, calls calls your baby ugly. and Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I've had those conversations, you know, the professional, but, you know, I kind of reference, hey, remember when I ask you, you want the truth? As truth as I see it. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's my my truth. Um, but I haven't had a negative experience with that. I mean, they appreciate it. In fact, um, you know, the, oftentimes they, you know, I'll hear not that infrequently, look, you know, you're one of the few, few people I feel that just tells me the truth because when you get to that level, it's, and they're in, people that are in the company. I mean, obviously they have a vested interest to please you yeah. and you don't always get, uh, get the same information. I mean, a good example with this uh, one company I was referring to, this distri distribution company, uh, they had put together this comp plan and each of the companies they bought was different, but they tried to standardize it and they did. But when I speak to the salespeople and this, you know, the, the, the sales leaders, like they're all scratching their heads. They have no idea how it works. Right. And that's not good. Right. It wasn't that they weren't intelligent. It was just so, it was like a rubric. And ultimately, you know, it was a kind of shell game, too, uh, that they realized. And I'm like, look, man, and, and uh, talking to leadership, particularly CEOs, like, oh, we spent so much time explaining. What do you mean they don't understand? It? Look, I'm just telling you, they don't understand it. It's complicated. It's not motivating behaviors that you want. <laughs> we need to change. And here's here, the, you know, here's a, a different approach to the same thing. That'll be easier. It's not going to be any more expensive. It'll be transparent. Folks will know where they are, where they need to go much more simply. And it's going to get the behavior uh, from the right people. And the behavior it doesn't get uh, from some people, uh, they, they're not going to be part of the organization. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But as yeah. companies grow, things, uh, you know, roles change, the needs of the companies change. Uh, you know, uh, it just, it's, it's a, a fact of, uh, you know, growing a company. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is I, what I see too is the companies that are successful, they really, and you're a good example here, they really understand, you know, why prospects buy, you know, they, they understand their, their audience, their markets. Uh, you know, you made a good point that used to be, uh, I have a lot of services and, and pe people in VC, VCs get, caught in this trap sometimes too, founders. 
like, oh, they go to make the pitch. And this is a billion dollar opportunity, right? Because this technology can be used here, here, you know, health. We just get 1% uh, of the market. Yeah. Manufacturing. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it can be, you know, like it's Stripe, you know, something like that, you know, pervasive, you know, and it's not. And uh, it's like timeout, timeout. Let's focus on two verticals. We want to be, we don't want to be an inch deep and a mile wide. I see this all the time. What we want to be is an inch wide, but a mile deep. If we can prove that out, run into problems to solve it. Once we get those two moving, and maybe one of them isn't the best one to go after, but that also solves or at least addresses a lot of the infrastructure, you know, the, the operations piece of it too. Then we can start expanding to other verticals. Like yeah, it's a lot. So you started out uh, wide, but now you've narrowed it down. It's just much more manageable, right? It's a lot it's, more cost effective to build a company that way because when you've got a specialty in a niche, uh, not only does everyone in your team work together better, but you can, you know, everyone can talk to the customer better. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. the expertise on the team is just that much better. So you get That's more right. done with less. And yeah. uh, it's just so much more efficient to build a niche company than it is to try to build, you know, this uh, catch-all. This catch-all, right. It's it's a much more... Com- so, and that's the reality of, of most, you know, organizations is just that, right? You, you, you know, when you start out, you're smaller and you have limited resources and, and it's, okay, what do we do with what we have that's a hard enough question to answer in itself if you start wanting to get into different areas it just overcomplicates things and i think you made a great point too now you also have uh you know employees who are part of your bench right because they're learning something about an industry something about you know particular technology even if they're not focused in it just even through osmosis they know about it they understand the concept, right? So now if you have someone talented and you want to move them to another area, you don't have to start from scratch, you know? You don't have to I saw hire an interview uh, with Jeff Bezos. I think it was like 99, maybe 2000, uh, when they were only doing books back then. Okay. And uh, so it's a great example of like inch wide, mile deep. They were only doing books. And the interviewer says, uh, so I think they were asking about like bookstores, like Barnes and Nobles, and you know, are are you going to take over, you know, the industry, the book industry? And and they said, uh, well, we plan to disrupt e-commerce. You know, in general, we're just starting with books because it's you know difficult to sell online, and we think we can do it the best. And then the funny funniest part of the interview at the end, Jeff Bezos goes, uh, "Well, I think this could be a hundred million dollar company." <laughs> <laughs> Well, he wasn't wrong. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess some other you know, points, I guess. The other key driver, it's they understand their, at least I should say, no sales metrics. Again, I'm referring, obviously, my area is sales, right? But you, you have a sense because there's data, and it doesn't have to be spot on, deadly accurate, detailed data. But you have a good sense that the average life cycle is three months. Okay, some are longer, some are shorter, but it's going to take about three months. Uh, <clears throat> you understand how many meetings it's taken to get to that point, right? And so you have some simple buckets of information that are general, but if things are outliers, it's that's a red flag, right? And and uh, so knowing those metrics, even in a general way, it is really really important and valuable 
if a company wants to grow. Because you plug those basic numbers in, it's okay, if we want to double, okay, how many proposals? You know, I mean, you just do the simple math, easier said than done. But, uh, and the other piece is- uh, It's like it's like baking a cake, but you're making it double the size. Yeah. Like yeah. how do you, uh, you know, change the, the recipe to get to, you know, the recipe says this, but let's uh, make it, you know, double the size. It's, it's twice, we want a, a cake that's twice as big, right? Uh, and in theory, uh, that should work, right? Uh, it sort should of, work. At least on your uh, COGS, maybe not on your OPEX, but. But it, at least you have some pathway, you know, versus companies that I, you know. So you, you have to, <laughs> one thing, uh, I've been, you know, VP of sales of many different organizations. In fact, certainly VC-backed startups, but the other end of the spectrum, I've also been uh, vice president of sales of a small $17 billion division of GE, right? And these those are, and by the way, that was a small division with GE at the time. Uh, those are two entirely different animals, entirely yeah. different animals. Um, but uh, what was my point about that is, is, yeah, the, the the talent is 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 really the key in the leadership, and I think that's one of the other key takeaways is that the sales leadership, it, at least, has to hold people accountable. Uh, and I see that particularly with uh, private companies, um, and that that's where uh, another one of the questions I ask if it is a private company and fam- family owned or was started by you know an individual, a founder. I'll ask them, I say, are there any sacred cows in your organization, right? I need to know now, because if Billy Bob, you know, your cousin has been with you and he stinks at sales, but it's the last place you could find a place for him because he won't cause as much trouble, you got to let me know, because if I don't, I'm going to recommend Billy Bob get out of here, right? But some, it's your company. You tell me. I'll work around them if I have to, but... Let me know. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're paying me money to help them fix things, you know. So, and and that's kind of the tail end of what we do is then we roll up our sleeves and help them execute and uh, to actually make it happen. And we we do a risk sharing model. So yeah, there's a retainer on uh, a monthly basis because there's a lot of legwork that's involved. We become the de facto sales leader in some cases. Uh, help with the hiring and uh, onboarding and, you know, ongoing, um, you know, management. Um, so each quarter we get together with the CEO and say, okay, what are our goals? And usually it's revenue, right? So if, if doing our assessment, we know we can get to A, B, C, D, E in terms of total revenue, depending on the sales cycle, you know, the first quarter and I, and a half might just be kind of objective based because you depending on the sales cycle, you know, maybe you're lucky, but not much. Whatever happened a few months before is what's resulting in sales today. Uh, but beyond that, it's just it's usually just sales, right? So if we hit certain targets that we both committed to, then uh, we get a little piece of that too. And and uh, the founders, the you know the the companies typically like that because we're not just doing consulting and saying, hey, here's here's how you should change. It's like it better work because we're our rev, you know, our income is directly tied to it as well. So yeah. Anyhow. Uh cool. yeah, we've been on for quite a while. 
Yeah, I think cool. this is our longest episode yet, but uh, ah, you know, yeah. you can edit out some. No, we're yeah. good. It's uh, it's all all uncut. Um, so I I think uh, I think we're at a good wrapping up point though. Is there uh, anything else you want to plug or uh, anything that's uh, you know anything else we, you no, want to close no. on? No, thanks. I will make one additional plug. We uh, my marketing I call him my marketing guru and I uh, we we again saw a need and it's uh, with sales leaders, sales managers, and oftentimes particularly with the smaller companies. Uh, you know, a very good salesperson gets the opportunity to now be a manager, right? And some folks that they they want to do that, they think they want to do that. And um, unfortunately, uh, even with larger companies, there's not a lot of training for sales leadership in a, in B two B companies. And invariably, you know, things go sideways, and they try different things. They're smart people, uh, and it's not working, and they can't really go to their boss and say, hey, you know, I've tried all these things. Nothing's working, right? Because that may be the second to last conversation they have with that boss. Yeah. Basically what they're telling, they don't, they're not sure how to improve things. So we made a decision to create a community, a private community of B2B sales leaders. There's a you have to qualify for it, right? So we only want folks who are actually leading a sales team. We're industry agnostic. Uh, it's only B2B. And we've created a full um, course with multiple modules on different aspects of growing sales within a B2B company and skills that would be needed. Because, uh, you know, being a good leader or sales manager, uh, it's not rocket science. It's just a different skill, right? It's a different approach to something that you were really familiar with when you were the uh, individual contributor. Uh, and that community, we have people that come in and, and speak. Uh, it's web-based. It's a um, subscription service. So from a business perspective, is also the idea is to kind of level out revenues because it tends to be lumpy on the consulting side. Uh, but we, but we, we, we've launched it. We have a bunch of members. It's going well. Uh, we're enjoying it. Uh, we have What's a it database. Called? It's called Innovo Sales Leaders. NovoSalesLeaders.com? dot com. Yeah. Yeah. I N N O V O salesleaders.com. Yeah, I love yes, that. That's a great business. I love those uh recurring community businesses. Uh, how quickly did it take you to get a scale of membership that uh made sense, like a reaching that critical mass to make it valuable from a community perspective? Yeah. Um it took over a year. And I, I would I would blame partly myself for that, just because you know we're running our core business, um, and now that things have intentionally kind of scaled down a little bit, so we can spend more time on on this. So now we're starting to really see the benefits of that. So cool. Cool. Uh, it. it took I a while. Pick your uh, brain more about that offline because I have uh, sure. another. Uh, another business I'm working on that's not exactly that, but it's sort of that, that for the agency, uh, you know, demand gen space. Yeah. Uh, so that, that uh, we should, you know, offline have a combo on that. Uh, that would be fun. I'd love to, I'd love to, I can tell you all about the mistakes we've made to get here. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so you can avoid them. Love so, it. Love it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark, thanks right, so man. much for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, Brian. And I look forward to seeing you again. And, um, uh, yeah, this, by the way, we we met through uh, 
I'm uh, a client of mine. I actually happen to be on the board of this company as well. And uh, I've been pushing them to e-commerce. Uh, so we're going to get you guys engaged again, because I know you were real helpful out of the gate and they weren't ready. Um, but we're starting to get to the point where the market's going to demand it. So cool. Yeah, we're here when, uh, when you're ready yeah. to chat. Right on. Thank you. All right, Mark. I'll see you. Bye-bye.